So far in the story, I should say, Joseph has been betrayed by his brothers, uh, the 12 or the 11. Uh, He's been sold into slavery through various twists and turns. He's now ended up uh, as the the right-hand man of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Uh, There's been a famine and Joseph has collected all the grain and his brothers have come up from Canaan, uh, where his family lived, and have finally been reunited with him. Uh, And he's about to introduce them to Pharaoh. So Genesis 47, verse 1. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They're now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What's your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We've come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph brought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own. 
as seed for the field, as food for yourselves and your household, and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have a fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I found favour in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Let's pray. Our Father God, you've told us that all scripture is God-breathed. And so we pray that that same breath that inspired these words, that same spirit, your Holy Spirit, who caused them to be written, would now uh, enable us to hear what you want to say to your people this morning. Bless us, therefore, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the best way to tell someone's religion? What's the best way to tell someone's religion? Uh, Imagine you've been sent abroad to a foreign country, you knew nothing about it, you were parachuted in, and you had to get to know, what what do these people believe? Or turn it around. Imagine someone who's never heard of, of the UK, never been here before, never... Uh, seen TV shows or documentaries or read books about the UK, imagine that they were parachuted in to our country. And they had to work out, what what do we believe? What is our religion? Uh, One philosopher said this, the best way to understand a culture is to understand its greatest hope and its greatest fear. In other words, if you want to understand what people really believe, understand what they hope for most and what they fear most. And that is the key to understanding their religion. Never mind what buildings they go to on a special holy day of the week or otherwise. Never mind what songs they sing, prayers they say. Get to the bottom of what they hope for most and fear most. What do you hope for most? If Aladdin's genie could pop up, children, you've seen maybe Aladdin in the cartoon. Remember, the genie pops up and grants the three wishes. If you could have one wish, just one, what would it be? What do you fear most? Uh, that, I want to suggest to you this morning, will get to the heart of, well, frankly, what we're living for, what ultimately our religion is. I say that to you whether you'd call yourself a Christian uh, or not. Or whether you're somebody trying to work these things out or feels pretty settled on their understanding of life. I hope Sunday by Sunday, by the way, that, that we do get a whole mix of people along. I hope you feel very welcome among us if you're not sure that you believe some of the things we've been saying and singing this morning. Uh, Genesis 47, I think, can help us uh, address these questions and help us think more clearly about our greatest hope and perhaps reassure us with our greatest fears. It's a long chapter. We're not going to be able to pick apart every verse. 
So I want to focus in particularly as a kind of key to understanding it uh, on this little encounter between Jacob and Pharaoh. It's really verses 7 to 10. And if I can sort of give the game away a little bit to start with, as it were, I think that the overriding message, not just of Genesis 47, but really the whole of, of the Bible, for, for those who, who would follow Christ, for those who, who trust in him, is that we must understand we're not home yet. Okay, if, you, if you switch off, children, if you forget everything else for the rest of the sermon, okay, here we go. We're not home yet. And therefore, we should live like we're not home yet. Let's dive in and look at some of the details. Uh, we're not home yet. First of all, I want to say we're not home yet, so we need to look to the future. Let's, let's look at this encounter between Jacob and Pharaoh. Pharaoh, of course, is the great king of Egypt, the most powerful ruler on earth at the time. And he asks Joseph, sorry, Jacob, in verse 8, how many of the days of the years of your life, i.e., how old are you? And look at Jacob's response. Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. He, he answers the question in slightly different words. Pharaoh says, how many are the days of your life, or the days of the years of your life? Jacob says, the days of my sojourning. Now, sojourning is the kind of word that, as far as I'm aware, no normal person uses. Um, it might be an Americanism, I'm not sure, but it just means travelling, okay? journeying. How old are you? He says, I've been travelling for 130 years. Why does he speak in that way? Travelling, sojourning, journeying. Well, because he knows he isn't home. Now, for Jacob, there's a sort of immediate sense in which he knows he's not home. Uh, he is part of a family that God has picked out. If we'd read all of Genesis, we'd see the sort of story develop. He's the, the, the third generation of a family that God has picked out and made some very specific promises to. In particular, for our, our purpose this morning, they've been promised the land of Canaan, okay, what we now call Israel, that the promised land. As he stands before Pharaoh, Jacob's in Egypt. So in a very literal sense, he's not home. Uh, that's why you might have noticed at the end of the, the passage, verses 29 to 31, he makes a big deal as he's dying about saying to Joseph, his son, make sure you take my body back to Canaan. He trusts God's promise that one day his family, his people, will be in their homeland. But he recognises he's going to die first. They're not home yet. In fact, even the fact that he's so obsessed with being buried in, in the promised land is a little sign that, that Jacob realises that it's not just that he's not home in Canaan, but he realises that the fullness of God's promises haven't arrived that is to say, why would he be bothered where his body is buried? Okay, if he knows he's going to die in Egypt, and that's it, well, why would he care? Who cares where you're buried? He knows that death is not the end. He knows that the God who he worships, the God he believes in, is a God of resurrection. That, incidentally, is why in the Bible, people bury bodies. In many other cultures, you'll know that often people cremate bodies. We, we do ourselves in it often. But, but the reason that in the Bible people bury their bodies is that they trust that God, one day God is going to raise us, not just our souls that go to heaven. That's what happens now. If you trust in Christ and die, your body goes in the ground, your soul goes to heaven. But they trust that one day God will fulfill his promise that soul and body will be reunited, 
glorified, made perfect, sinless, spotless, pain-free, but that one day there'll be a physical resurrection. Let me just say, by the way, that cremation doesn't stop that, or people who've died at sea, or been killed in wars. It's not as if God is unable to do that, but but they buried their bodies as a sign, if you like, that they knew that they were coming back. One uh, author has said that our, our bodies as Christians, they're not buried but sown. Every graveyard is a garden, if you like. A church I used to work at, the first church I worked at, uh, down in Derbyshire. Fair to say it was quite a lot prettier than this. A nice little kind of Church of England church in the countryside. And as you walk to church every day, you walk through the garden of the church, but the garden is full of graveyards, full of graves, sorry. Hundreds and hundreds of years old, some of them. But each one is sown, looking forward to the day when they'll be resurrected. Uh, it's also, I think, in the first six verses of our passage, this big deal is made about living in Goshen. Now, we're not going to get into the details too much here, but, but God's people, these 12 brothers and their wives and children, they've gone to Egypt and they settle in the land that is right next to the promised land, right next to the land that God has promised them, so that they're kind of ready to go when God finally calls them home. But the whole passage, if you like, is set in the context of, OK, we're here now, Pharaoh, but, but this isn't it. And Jacob knows it's not just that one day his children's children's children will get into Canaan, but one day God has promised resurrection life. And that's why he's looking to the future. He knows he's not home, so he looks to the future. And let me say it is exactly the same for you and me nowadays. If we put our trust in Christ, we are in the same position. There is no promised land for people on earth now. There's no one land, one holy country. But God has promised that one day he will renew the earth. One day our bodies and our souls will be restored. And the glory of that day can't be described. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, let me read you one verse in 1 Corinthians. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. It's an extraordinary verse when you think about it. No eye has seen, no ear heard, nor has the heart or the mind imagined what God has prepared in the future for those who love him. What's heaven going to be like? What's the new earth going to be like when Christ returns? Paul says, I can't even describe it. No one's seen it. No one's heard about it. I can't get into words how great it is. I can't even imagine. He's almost asking us to imagine the unimaginable. And so he wants us to be people who are living for the future. We too know that this earth is not it. This life is not it. The true glory, the the truest happiness, if you like, awaits in the future. And that's why our our eyes ought to be over the horizon rather than set on now. We ought to be thinking about the future rather than just the here and now. Imagine, uh, children, that, that your dad tells you you're going to go on holiday Mum and dad say it's holiday time and they don't tell you where you're going. So you you get up in the morning and a a big Rolls Royce car with a swimming pool in the back comes to pick you up. Okay, And you get driven by a chauffeur to the airport. When you get to the airport, you're in a first class lounge. Okay, They give you champagne and um, maybe not champagne for the children. Uh, Really nice juice. Uh, Champagne for daddy. You get on the plane and it's straight to the front end of the plane, the pointy bit where all the posh wealthy people sit. You can stretch out on beds. People come and give you any food you like as you travel. It is utter luxury. 
And you land at the far end. You get off the plane. You say to Dad, this is brilliant. What's next? Where are we going? And how do you feel if he said, well, I haven't really sorted that. We've got nowhere to stay. No hotel, no house. We've got no food. I don't frankly know where we are. We've got no money. I'm not prepared for this. What would you feel like, in other words, if you invested all the money on the journey and never thought about the destination? It'd be foolish, wouldn't it? Well, that's what we're like if we give all our attention to this life now, making it as luxurious as we can, but aren't concentrating or thinking about where we're going. We know we're all heading to death. That ultimately, I'd suggest, is the fear of every human being. If you bury down far enough, what we fear is death. Might fear spiders. I might fear snakes, I might fear aeroplanes. But ultimately, I fear them because of what they can do to me. All of us has this deep down dread of death. God has set eternity on our hearts. Again, whether we'd say we're Christians or not, we sense that we're here for something. We're here ultimately eternally. So we're to lift our eyes and look to the future. If you're a Christian, it means you don't fit in now necessarily. Uh, the the, the uh, brothers in Egypt, living in this land, were, were sort of in Egypt, but not of Egypt, you might say. Also, too, we as Christians now, we're, we're in the world. Of course, we're to care about our families and work hard, and, but, but we understand we're not the same as the world. So if people look down on us because we make choices in light of the future rather than now, well, that's okay. The brothers were an abomination, we're told, in the chapter before. The Egyptians looked down on shepherds. The shepherds are sort of scummy people. It'd be much easier for the brothers and their families just to integrate, become part of the Egyptian culture. But they don't because they're focusing on the future. And that is our call. Look to the future. Ultimately, the future is where you're going to spend all your life. And ultimately, death is the funeral of all your sorrows, to quote one of the old Puritans. We think of our death as the worst day. But actually, if you've trusted Christ and you've been promised that resurrection life, then death is the funeral of your sorrows, the end of them all. So look to the future. We're not home yet, look to the future. We're not home yet, secondly, so don't expect too much now. What, what did you think of Jacob's words, looking at them again? Verse 9. The days of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. 130 Talk about having a good innings, to use the kind of horrible phrase we use uh, very often in England. 130, and yet he says, few and evil have been my days. Now, is he letting the side down there? Is he giving a poor witness to Pharaoh after all God's done for him? Well, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think Jacob is unaware of the blessings God has given him. In fact, in a couple of chapters of time, he'll, he'll talk about that. God is going to bless him even more. He doesn't die until he's 147. So he's 17 more years of his life left, probably to fa- parallel the 17 years he had with Joseph at the beginning of the story. Joseph, you might remember, was 17 when he was taken from Jacob. So it's like he gets those years back again at the end, the, to the bookends of his life. J- Jacob knows that. But he also knows that ultimately, his life, as recorded in Genesis, his earthly life, is it, just but a dot in the timeline of his of eternity. Uh, he knows ultimately that what he's been through, highs and lows, 
can be described as evil compared to the glory that awaits him in the future. He recognises he's not home, so he doesn't rate this life that highly, because he can see that by comparison, it's nothing compared with what God has promised him. Eternal life is far greater than life now. Eternal life is longer, we might say. Jacob knows 130 years is nothing. Children, again, if you, you read Harry Potter, okay, you, you've seen the Harry Potter books, okay, all of them in a row. Seven books in about eight volumes or something. Massive, chunky books. Okay, imagine that was the story of your life. Well, the part of your life that you'll live on earth before you die is just like the first page. And everything else is about the time we'll live with God in heaven. In fact, forget Harry Potter. Imagine Harry Potter in a library full of books, wall-to-wall books, all around the world, all telling the story of your life. And just the first page accounts for the 70, 80 years we live on earth. Eternal life is infinitely longer because it never ends. It's not just quantity that marks eternal life, though. It's also quality. Uh, Jacob described his life as evil. And to be really blunt, frankly, your life on earth, if you're a Christian, is as close to hell as you're ever going to get. You ever thought about that? Your life on earth is as close to hell as you're ever going to get. You, you probably will suffer. Very few of us get through life without suffering. You certainly will die unless Christ returns. But that is the worst it's ever going to get. Because the promise, that unimaginable future, it is so much greater. And that unimaginable future includes no mourning, no suffering, no pain, no sin, No sadness, no sickness, no depression, uh, no broken relationships, no abandonment, no spite, no jealousy, no fear, but joy, eternal joy, love without fail, a world of love, eternal happiness. So do you see that the higher a view you have of the future, of what God has promised us, the less we we need to try and manufacture heaven on earth now. If you've got that certain hope of glory to come, we don't need to create paradise on earth in our lives now. I think previous generations probably got this better than we do. We've been blessed immensely, haven't we? We have healthcare. We, few of us probably in this room, worry about whether we're going to be able to eat later in the day. Few of us have lived in war zones or famines, as the people that we've read about in Genesis today. But previous generations, the life expectancy was much lower. You'd be very unlikely to end your life married to the first person that you married. Not because of divorce rates, they would be lower. But rather, very likely your spouse might die. As would several of your children. At a less dramatic uh, level, you grew up in a village in England 200 years ago. The choice of people you could marry is going to be pretty limited. Okay, there might be I don't know, 10, 20 people of marriageable age. And what would you do for a career? Do what your dad did. You'd probably just farm to survive. There's no career advisory service or choice. You just do what you have to do in order to put food on the table and shelter over your head. And people understood that and accepted it. It's not that it was a better way of life. Of course, we've been far more blessed nowadays. 
It's good to have hospitals and uh, warm houses and all the rest of it. But the danger is it, it, it kids us into thinking that we can have heaven on earth. And it, it kids us, if, if we're not careful, into having unrealistic expectations about the here and now. It makes me think that I've got to make my life the best life now. I see some of you are studying and trying to work out what career to do. And we're constantly encouraged to think, well, what job is going to make me happy? Where am I going to find job satisfaction? Perhaps some of you are already working. You've been working for a few years and you're thinking, this is not satisfying me. Okay, this is not fun. I'm not really enjoying this. Just a question that wouldn't have occurred to previous generations. Are you satisfied in your job milking cows and you know, collecting hen's eggs or whatever? Just do it because I want to live. Marriage. Your marriage is not going to bring heaven to earth. And when you realise this, I suggest it enables you to have a better marriage because it takes the pressure off. I don't need my husband or my wife to create paradise at home. We try our best. We love one another. We give ourselves to one another. But it doesn't need to be paradise now. If I'm not married, can I encourage you not to be overly picky? Okay? You will not find a perfect person. I can think of people down the years who, who've just never been able to, to, to ask people out, or, or, or if they have been going out with people, would constantly go through a series of boyfriends or girlfriends because they're never satisfied. And some of the time I think it is that they would never be satisfied because they're waiting for, well, absolute perfection. You'll be waiting forever. You see, if I've got confidence that, that ultimately eternal glory and happiness awaits, then it frees me from having to make my life paradise now, and therefore it should make me less self-centred. It's less about what makes me happy. Is my job making me happy? Is my wife making me happy? Is this house making me happy? Because I know happiness is guaranteed. And that frees me up to concentrate on, well, other people. So think of a guy who has a classic midlife crisis, uh, realises that he's not really enjoying his career, uh, and uh, a, a younger woman catches his eye. The, the, the story our culture tells us, our culture which is so given to your best life now, is you, you, you owe it to yourself to be happy. So if your wife, now you're 50, isn't making you happy anymore, and there's a 25-year-old who is interested, well, go for it. You owe it to yourself to be happy. Maximum pleasure for me now. But again, turn it around. If I can say to myself, no, this life is not about creating paradise on earth. This life is not all there is. Then I can put up with the inevitable disappointments, the inevitable sufferings, the inevitable pain, because I know there's more to come. We're not at home so don't expect too much now. It's not meant to be a counsel for despair. Of course we work hard. It's great if you can enjoy your job. But knowing there's a certain future of glory takes the pressure off building heaven on earth. And then finally, thirdly and finally, we're not home yet. So look backwards with confidence. Back 
one last time to those key verses, verses 7 uh, to 10. The strangest thing happens in those verses. Did you spot it? If you imagine the scene, try and picture it in your mind's eye, Pharaoh and Jacob, Genesis 47, verses 7 to 10, something very strange happens. It happens twice, in fact, before and after the conversation. Verse 7, in comes Jacob before Pharaoh, and Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Then again, verse 10, after the conversation, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. That's even more extraordinary than his words, I would suggest to you. Do you see the scene? Pharaoh on the throne, Jacob before him. Uh, One is the ruler of the greatest empire on earth, the most powerful man on the planet, enthroned, glorious, every pleasure at the click of his fingers. The other is a half-starved, 130-year-old refugee. And who blesses who? The, The ruler of the greatest empire on earth versus the father of a dozen dirty, rotten scoundrels. And who blesses who? Children, maybe you've seen, have you ever seen the queen knighting someone? Have you ever seen that ceremony? Or, or the queen giving someone a medal? Okay, when they've been particularly brave in a war or something like that. And the, the, the soldier or whoever might come in and the queen will be maybe stood in front of her throne and she'll pin a medal on the soldier's chest. We'll just imagine the scene that the queen is there standing on her throne and in walks the 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 grubbiest beggar off the streets. And the beggar walks before the queen and says, your majesty, pulls out from his pocket a little bit of tinfoil he's shaped into the shape of metal and tied a bit of grubby string round and hangs it round her neck. What's going on? It's the great one who, who blesses the, the lesser one, the queen who gives gifts to well, us normal people. But here, in Genesis 47, the lesser seeming, the one who looks like a nobody, is blessing the greater. Why? Because Jacob is the one through whom God has promised to bless the world. Again, the, 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 what's called the covenant, the, the relationship between God and his people that has been passed down the generations, entails Jacob's family being a blessing to the nations of the earth. And if Pharaoh was tempted to doubt that, he could look out the palace window. We really haven't got time to dig into the, the story of Joseph and the famine in, in much detail at all. But, but in essence, in the middle of this famine, that the people of Egypt come to Joseph with all their money, they buy the grain, then they run out of money. So they come back next year with their livestock to buy grain. But the famine continues. So the next year they say, well, look, all our livestock's gone, all our money's gone. Take our land. We'll become servants, bond servants to Pharaoh. Sometimes people have criticised Joseph, said he's, isn't he a bit harsh? Uh, to be honest, I'd love to live under Joseph's regime. See in verse 24, what do they have to pay? A fifth. Wouldn't you love a 20% tax bill? <laughs> okay. if, you, if you're working in England nowadays, you're paying a lot more than 20% tax. When you think of VAT and council tax and income tax and fuel tax and 100 hidden ones, uh, Joseph is no nasty dictator here. And when, they, when we read about the, the Egyptians becoming servants, bond servants of Pharaoh, don't think... 18th century slave trade. The Bible condemns capturing people as slaves and selling them as slaves very clearly. Okay? It's not that kind of slavery. This is more like someone going to work. If you've watched um, Downton Abbey, you know, people go and work in the house and then they get to live in the house and they um, feed in the house. They, it's part of their, if you like, their contract that they work for the Lord of the manor. Pharaoh has become Lord of the whole country. 
uh, they very clearly see it as a blessing. Uh, In verse uh, 25, they say, you have saved our lives. And so they become servants of the great emperor. But I think there's a bigger point here. I'm not just doing some PR for Joseph. The first people to read these stories, to hear these stories, would have been the Israelites just after they'd escaped. Hundreds of years later, about 400 years later, the Israelites have become slaves of the Egyptians and they escape through the Exodus into the desert to head towards the promised land. And you can imagine them, and in fact, if you read the stories as happened, you can imagine them thinking, are we, the little sort of scummy Israelites, the nobodies, the people who've been slaves of the Egyptians for 400 years, are we really going to be blessed and receive a promised land? As they go into the desert, they grumble against God and say, perhaps we should go back to Egypt. At least there we were fed and housed and watered. Is God really going to deliver paradise for us? It looks so unlikely. And so as they hear these stories, they see an example of when God has reversed things, when God has used a nobody, but a nobody who he has chosen as his instrument of blessing and raised them up above all the Gentiles. In this story, if you like, the Israelite, Joseph, the least likely candidate, little boy who was 17 and sold into slavery, who spent many years in jail, he is the one through whom God has blessed Egypt ultimately. God has done it before, the Israelites could think, and he will do it again. Pharaoh could look out the window and see God is blessing my country through this man Joseph. It looks unlikely, but it is his way of working. And so when Jacob blesses him, frail, old, decrepit, refugee Jacob in a foreign land, Pharaoh ought to know that it is really God through Jacob, who is blessing him. It is always God's way to work through the unlikely-looking sources. And so we come to to Christ, ultimately, to whom all the Bible points. When Isaiah prophesies Jesus coming, he speaks of him not as some great majestic king that we'd all be attracted to, not the kind of guy who would gather crowds necessarily and lead city centre. He describes him like this in Isaiah 53. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That's true of Jesus' earthly life, isn't it? He was largely rejected. It's true of us now, isn't it? Is it? Does it seem likely to you that the way to eternal glory, that the way to a world of love and peace and eternal rest is through trusting a crucified descendant of Jacob, a man who was butchered by the Romans 2,000 years ago by being hanged on a cross? It looks unlikely, doesn't it? And yet that is God's way of salvation. This great, 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 great grandson of Jacob came into the world to rescue us. He is the one who ultimately went down into the pit, not just prison, but into the grave itself, and God rose up on the third day and then ascended and and sat at his right hand in heaven. He is the one who now can give blessing to the world. He is the one who provides food for the world, not physical food, although he oversees that, but ultimately spiritual food. He is the one who provides spiritual life for us, He is the one who describes himself as the bread of life and that whoever feeds on him will not die, but have eternal life. 
all we do is put our trust in him. His death in our place. His death carrying our sin. As Isaiah goes on to say, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. For Jesus, it was death and suffering before resurrection. But we know that he did, he walked through that suffering confident that he would rise again, confident that he would enter that world of glory. Hebrews tell us, tells us that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. And so as we follow after him, we follow the pattern. Yes, there is suffering now. Yes, you will weep. Weeping may stay for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The final morning will be when Christ returns. So lift your eyes to that horizon. It is certain because he has won it for you if you put your trust in him. It is certain because we've seen him die and come back to life. So look to that horizon. Let it put your present suffering into context. Don't expect too much now. And you can't begin to imagine the glory that awaits you. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we confess before you that uh, the shadow of death is cast over our world, that uh, it strikes fear into all men's hearts. And so we praise you that Christ has conquered death, that in his resurrection, uh, every enemy has been defeated. Uh, we pray that you would now that you would fill us with hope, sure and certain hope of the resurrection. Uh, might we be those who hold to this life lightly and live in light of the glory to come. Lift our eyes to what is as yet unseen. And we pray, uh, give us the spirit of Christ that we might honour him in how we walk until that day comes. We ask in his name and for his glory's sake. Amen.